Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Tech and E-Commerce podcast. I'm your host, Rushit Shah, and I'm also Regional Director at Elcott Global, responsible for executive search and consulting business in Asia-Pacific. Our mission is to connect the tech in supply chain and e-commerce ecosystem globally by bringing forward some of the interesting stories about success and failures from leaders in industry. Today, we have Jamayu and Amanda from Sayubos. Welcome, both of you. Hi, hi, Rishit. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Rishit, thanks so much for your time and uh, pleasure to be here. Awesome. We'll start very simple. I should tell you that I did, I did a little bit of reading on Cyberbox. And one thing catched my eye is that, you know, the, the story started from Amanda Yu, basically worked with a kale farmer. I think his name was Misto. And uh, that's where the, this whole Cyberbox story originated. We'd love to learn more about how it happened and kind of more detailed story of how, what you were helping them on and where do you see this going? Back in 2017, I had quit my job actually to become, to become a farmer. So a lot of issues, but I mean, Cyberbox was really founded with that social mission of uh, being able to provide market access to local farmers through the digitalization of Indonesia's supply chain. So yeah, just going back to the story, I was farming before I started Cyberbox, had met a farmer called Misto. I actually started to build my own farm and then got to know farmers within the area. And then as I kind of spoke to them, I saw there were like three main issues within the farming industry or agriculture industry in Indonesia. So one being that farmers have no uh, capital. So they have no access to funds to really expand their farming, to build a supply chain, to, to connect directly to customers. So that's one. Number two is... They also don't have demand or price transparency. So usually these farmers, they don't know what to grow. This is because the supply chain is so long and they're not able to get that access to the end end users. They usually grow, they tend to grow whatever their farmers' neighbors grow. So uh, what ends up happening is people, these farmers grow the same things and then supply ends up being bigger than demand and then uh, prices dropped. And sometimes they'll sell for lower than the actual cost of production. This happens a lot. That's why there's great like price fluctuation that you see in the market that has to do with agriculture products. And number three is the lack of education. So again, farmers will face difficulty on how to build up their farms, how to improve their yield, how to basically become more profitable in their farming business. So essentially we saw this and then that's when my co-founders and I wanted to see how we can create better access from for farmers to the market so we are solving the supply chain infrastructure and logistic part so we're building the end-to-end system from farms to end consumers we're building the technology the demand forecasting for us to be able to uh, deliver products directly from farmers to end consumers so we're really in control of the customer experience as well yeah i mean on, on the farmer side we're also partnering up with institutions and partners to improve the productivity and on the farmer's end. So we're kind of bundling everything together to create this platform. I mean, we've come a long way since then, since we started. So originally we did start off with just fruits and vegetables. Now we've come to expand into other categories. So we have now built ourselves into a fully fledged e-grocery platform. So not only selling goods from farms, but also from producers and brands So we're extending that mission that we were solving from farmers to also local brands and producers and also looking into imported goods as well. So, I mean, 
yeah, from here, I mean, we hope to continue to grow and to build up our business. I think there's still a long road right ahead of us. That's awesome, Amanda. Um, you know, my, 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 my dad has a couple of land and, you know, he gives that land on lease to farmers to kind of grow things. But so I know that, you know, there are certain challenges working with them. So I'm, I'm quite curious to kind of know how are you actually solving those problems with farmers? I mean, you know, they do not believe in going very corporate with contracts. Yeah. Communication is a major issue. Trust is a major issue. And then going and telling them it never works, literally never works. So how, yeah. how are you actually building that relationship with them? How are you solving each problem? And what are the major problems you're getting while working with the farmers as well? Yeah, so we're really taking a step-by-step approach. I think with the farmers, we do have a sourcing team close to the farm areas where we can really uh, build out that relationship with them, really work with them to lock in the supply to be able to build a long-term partnership with these farmers and for them to also be able to expand further. Uh, but you're right. I think, I mean, there's, it's such a large scale, scale problem, right? We have like 30 million farmers in Indonesia. It's a challenge where we're doing it step by step. We're doing planting programs with them and we are connecting them with our uh, partners also to improve the yield and productivity. So, so we're really going on the ground and building the supply chain up from the upstream side and to be able to connect with them closer. That's awesome. Uh, and let me bring Jamil here as well and maybe ask him, what are the success stories you have seen, Jamil? I mean, I understand that you've been in business quite recently. So for you, what, what are the things you have seen from, and you come from a quite established organization and you're coming to more a startup kind of setting. Is there any quick success stories you have seen? And I understand as well that you have been traveling around, seeing farms, seeing retail stores. So what have you picked up? Yeah, I guess, Richard, for me, what I've seen is and the one thing that inspired me about the company, and I met Amanda for the first time with the uh, other co-founders, uh, Rama and Metha, I think 2017, December, October, December time. And we went through, you know, what they were doing, and I absolutely love this connectivity to the farms. And I think that's the story that, you know, we, we were working on in early days and, and see how we improve things and exactly what Amanda described. So I think the evolution of the business has been has been dramatic. And you know, when I come in and I look at it, I think a lot of processes work really well. Today, we're serving across three different cities in Indonesia. So we're in Jakarta, we're in Surabaya, we're in Bali. We're serving 10,000 orders a day with very high level of quality, both for, uh, you know, completeness of order and delivery on time. When you put into context how Indonesia generates for traffic and all the, you know, issues that you have with supply chain, that's a massive achievement. And this is for a startup to deliver at a very high level a very early in its stage i think that's that's you know a couple of things there then amanda nicely sort of sums up you know working with over ten thousand farmers where you know when we did the last numbers for last year we've procured over ten thousand tons of produce alone across the year so that's like a huge amount and again put into context we're a growing business we're still at early stage of our evolution that's massive We've also, when you look at the lead time, and the one thing I was really fascinated by, and, you know, when I was working in Singapore previously with another startup, we could never connect with farmers. We always had to work through a a third party. So, you know, your lead time and freshness was always compromised. Today, we're serving a product that, again, I went to a farm and I saw this, a product being harvested by, say, 11 in the morning would be within our supply chain by 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, actually potentially at a customer's table by 5 a.m. the next morning. So within 24 hours, we're moving our, our, our produce. 
And then I think the other bit is as we grew and we've noticed this in the last sort of eight months or so, and I was talking to Amanda about this, is like the talent we're now pulling in because of what we're doing. We're driving a social change and people are excited about that. So, you know, you look at that and the people who are stepping through the door saying we're interested to work with you, I think kind of says to us we have the right mission and vision statement in mind. We're doing something fantastic. And, you know, I really, like when I spent time in, in uh, I was in Bandung, I went up to, to the, uh, the farms. And again, point of context for uh, your listeners, Jakarta is around 33, 35 degrees every day, very hot, humid. I went to Bandung, it reached around 17 degrees centigrade and by the evening about 13. I was very cold. So, you know, when you sort of put that into context, and, and what we're trying to make work and, and, and all the challenges we're facing is like an amazing story to tell and you know, super, super pleased to be part of the journey now. Thanks, Jamal. That's a great story. On the, you know, I mean, again, you know, we have kind of accepted this pandemic to be an endemic, but again, what are the obvious challenges pandemic has thrown at you? And what are the upsides which Cyberbox has basically got because of this pandemic? I mean, apart from people do going and buying on kind of e-commerce or, you know, e-retailers, but is there any other upsides you have got because of pandemic? Yeah, I, I guess, Rishi, the best way to answer this question would be we, you know, we were thrust into the situation where we suddenly became this vital service overnight, suddenly went from just growing business to walk and now serve customers because everyone will then depend on you. And we did a great job in that one, right? So as people reached out to us, we had to then serve and we, we were actually managing the service because obviously the demand was like just so strong. They were to change our way of working. So I think the thing we learned out of that was, you know, how do you become much more leaner and also much more agile in how do you execute? Because, you know, sometimes you come up with a strong base of a certain SKU and, and offering that you're making that actually makes it difficult for you to scale your business. So it taught us a couple of lessons, make your range a bit more relevant and, you know, how do you manage that? Second thing is how do you serve your customers across? And again, if you put into context, you know, Jakarta actually on a, on a normal day is about the greater Jakarta area and has about 20 million population. And, you know, to, how do you serve it? How do you, how do you manage your, um, your networks and your uh, delivery sort of patterns within this, this area to maximize your, your output? and reach to as many customers. So actually told us a few things we had to do there. How do you then execute better? How do you grow your business? You know, out of this, what happened, our upside was, we managed to scale our business into Bali during that period because we recognized the need there. We had a local partner we could work with, so we went ahead and did that. So it brought a very like organic growth of something that wasn't there initially to what it is today. I think that for me would be some of the key elements that we sort of, we saw happening. and. It was a, a tough period, but uh, we learned a lot from it. Yeah, just to add, I think it also forces us as a team like to start thinking on how to be agile because we're seeing so many like un just uncertain things coming in coming up. And we've seen it in the past four to five years that we've been operating. So, I mean, we've taken that stance of really creating a culture that can be agile to uncertainty and to make sure we can keep kind of innovating and pivoting and can still move forward despite kind of all these uh, changes like the pandemic changes in the market and external other external factors uh, true i think the being agile has been kind of one of the top priorities but i, I think for usually a startup i think it's far more easier than companies who are quite rigid, quite big. So i'm assuming it's it's a little bit easier to achieve that but i think the major challenges and i don't know if you 
as a company are facing that is meeting this higher demand and trying to change too much and being too easy, you do not really make money. You end up losing on logistics, you end up kind of bargaining on to get a high, you know, first priority on the product, you start losing money as well. I don't know, what, was there a challenge where you started seeing making far more less money than before just to be more agile? Yeah, I mean, I th- you know, go back to the offering. So when you change your offer proposition, then obviously things sort of look a bit different from your basket size. You know, the changes you see, the um, number of customer orders are, are becoming, you get more orders, but then your, your uh, basket size changes. So the, the whole habit actually drives a very different behavior and you have to fulfill the orders. And I think to your point, when you're a larger business, you have different constraints, right? Which is about how do you, turn a big oil tanker around. Whereas for us, the challenge becomes, do we have the capability both from a people perspective as well as from a system and technology perspective to do something different? And, and I think your point's right around the more financial aspect. You know, if you want to very quickly set up a new warehouse, you can't just do it. You don't have the cash to do it. So there are different challenges that come in and, and here's where then you need to then look at your cost structure and you know, the economy of scale and how do you then serve an order and still be profitable so it, it does take a hit because yeah. your whole dynamics of your gross margin and your cm1 changes shape then you know your operating costs as a, as a percentage reflect very differently but then you kind of recognize this is a very unique experience to be going through however your pnl and your cfo doesn't seem too happy you did a very big series funding i think 120 million dollars we'd love to know how it's going to help the company accelerate and also what what is the vision where do you see this is going to be in the next three, five years? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, su- we're super excited uh, about the funding. I think we'll, we'll be able to invest a lot more in the supply chain, really build, again, continue to build that foundation to be able to grow sustainably and profitably going forward. And uh, we definitely uh, kind of in the short term want to have deeper penetration into the existing markets that we're in. So we just launched, we're in Jakarta and the outskirts cities. We did just launched two cities last year. So a big focus on these three cities this year, continuous penetration and yeah, really focus on improving the all around uh, customer experience. And we do have a B2B part of the business as well. So we do also do supplies. So not only, so not only household uh, consumers, we do also supply restaurants, um, supermarkets, resellers. This is through our uh, Sourbox agriculture products. And yeah, for this one, it's, it's mostly about really scaling up, acquiring more customers and building more partnerships. And do you see yourself as more, I mean, almost like a marketplace or you continue being where you be only getting your own products, your own farmers selling? Yeah, so today the model is actually based around the latter. So we want to actually hold inventory and we want to actually serve it. Reason for that is, you know, going back to the service level of describing today, our, our order fulfillment at order level, uh, not SKU level, order level is around 98%. And that's because we have physically the stock in our possession, can control it. But, you know, as, as you evolve, and one of the words we've been using as a company is that we want to be relevant to our customers. So, you know, relevancy means offer them an, a, a service that they actually need or a problem that they're facing that we need to, to help them with. So we see an evolution that will go through. And our business, you know, has gone through a change, you know, like Amanda described, we started with the, the bit around the farmers and digitizing that element. Then we talk about being an e-grocer. Then there's a, a lifestyle change people go through. 
that we already see now, right? So, so many people you meet now as we visit our business across the different cities and you find people living, for example, Bali and they've been there for a month because they're working from home and it's easier to do it from Bali. So the lifestyle change is driving a different behavior. You see more people in sort of co-offices and so on. So I think with, with that in mind, we need to be like just ahead of that curve on building the solution. So eventually the range we want to offer first is whatever we can control. Later on, we will want to look at how do we bring marketplace into the fold. You know, uh, we can offer many sort of options and solutions there that can actually enhance the customer's lifestyle. We also see potentially working with a major brand at some point. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, we bring a range from, I don't know, Europe or the US, where we are the sole distributors and we actually help that company scale this business into Asia and definitely you know, Indonesia becomes a stepping stone. We have a 300 million population and I think we can make a big dent into, you know, how we, we, we manage that. So that's how we see it working. Key is making sure the customer experience is never compromised and we're, we're always relevant to not only the problems we have today, but also how do we see customers' experience and lifestyles changing that demands a different service. And, and, and with, with, within Indonesia, I mean, you know, again, Indonesia is quite big and you said you're kind of getting to a very small market. When do you see the whole Indonesia is covered and do you, do you see a chance in a very near future where it goes out of Indonesia? Because, I mean, again, the demand for agriculture coming out of Indonesia to the rest of the Southeast Asia is quite high as well. Do you see that, you know, Cyberbox basically catering to Singapore or Thailand anytime soon? Yeah, I think if we like just if we focus on Indonesia, that in itself, the market is huge, right? Total addressable market that we're seeing is around upwards of kind of 200, 300 billion. Grocery market in itself is around 7 billion by like 2025. Again, 30 million farmers in Indonesia, large percentage of GDP is agriculture also in Indonesia. So definitely a huge market to serve. But if we say, will we expand into Southeast Asia? I think we're always like, why not? Right. I think the focus for the next this year and next year would be Indonesia. If we're able to move faster, then I mean, we'll, we're always open to seeing if there's any potential uh, collaborations, uh, JVs that we can do overseas or even launch ourselves. So I think we're at where we've always got that mindset that we're open to expansion and innovation and continue to surpass what we're doing now. now with, with pandemic, again, you know, e-commerce has been on rise, but do you see now when things are getting more normal? you see a certain stagnant or kind of, you know, e-commerce economy going down now, people going more outside rather than still using their behavior on e-com, you know, website and buying through websites? Yeah, I guess, you know, for, for us, when we discuss it internally, we use different data points to sort of private conclusions that we think we, we need to get to. So you see different cities at different stages, obviously in the West, you know, cities like London, New York, were a lot more quicker onto e-commerce than perhaps we were. But you see a different wave, right? You see the, the more parcel business actually excelling in Asia. The food business is catching up, right? So today, when you look at it, Indonesia's total grocery that's transacted online is less than half a percent. So there's a huge way forward from there. And when you compare that to other cities in, in, in Asia itself, you know, like, for example, Shanghai is touching in certain places of Shanghai is about 50%. Generally, it's 20% plus per larger city like, you know, Seoul, Tokyo, and so on. So I think there's a way we need to get to. But also, we, what we believe is that e-commerce alone is not the answer. We believe in a, in a O2O, right? Online, offline sort of model. So we think, you know, as humans, and we kind of realized this during the pandemic, 
being locked up in your own house was difficult. We're social animals. We need to get out there. We need to talk to people and see more and more of that happen. So we, we kind of noticed this during the pandemic as we saw the lockdowns ease, people going back to their normal uh, shops and, and supermarkets to buy their things. So I think bringing that, that experience of online offline is really important. Our view is there's like maybe 40% of transactions will be offline, 40 online, 20% will be you know, fluctuating between the two. It's about how do you make this experience relevant and what are you trying to do, right? So we think Indonesia has a huge growth potential definitely to go through. I don't see why we can't be a 15% market selling in the largest cities. The key thing for us is, is making sure that you're going back to customers the way we see it, our vision statement. Also, we talk about trust, you know, making sure that we earn the trust of customers, suppliers, sellers who work with us because that makes things work, right? So if I can serve a product that is actually as good as a quality of what I would pick myself, you deliver to me when I want it and it's complete, the chance of me reordering is, is very, very high. So I think for us, making sure we can do the basics right is important as a start. The evolution will go through, again, go back to lifestyle as people change what they're doing. And, and you know, it is something, you know, people, I've, I've spoken to some who said, you know, during pandemic, we ordered with you and we're still doing it today. But before that, they didn't. So I think it's about that journey we have to go through. But certainly where we are clear as a management team is, it has got to be a tremendous point. We need to be very nimble and we need to be a bit more uh, innovative in terms of how we, we build our solutions tailored to exactly the purpose we're trying to serve. What's your thought? What's the landscape of Indonesia in 10 years for e-commerce? I think I have a view. I'm sure Amanda will have it. I think generally what we'll see is more people will come definitely online. You know, I think we have a view every summer around 15 to 20% in certain cities. So I think, again, because Indonesia is so vast, I don't think it applies to all of Indonesia. The big cities will have a very different behavior. So I think that's number one. I think people will look for uh, different services. So again, today, we do a big basket where you check out today for next day delivery. And that's normally meant to be for your big shop. You know, either it's a weekly grocery shop or it's, it's a, a monthly one. And then we complement that with an instant delivery, which means this is now a small dark store. And we're aiming today to deliver, click to deliver in, in 60 minutes. And this is supposed to be a top-up stroke, more of an impulse buy. So making sure these two are very complementary, and this works. We also see, you know, we, we tested a few things as because we have access to all the produce and, and fruits and vegetables from the farms. We actually serve also some fruit that we cut up and actually serve it as that. And we also serve products that, you know, generally fruits, uh, so vegetables are not quite perfect to sell. We sell them in the imperfect sort of state. So now you see a different market open up these things. So I think that's something we need to also play on harder. And then, like I said, you know, this, this hybrid of online, offline is really key for us. So we see these things playing out and it shouldn't be any dissimilar to any other city in the world. You know, when you look at Jakarta, very cosmopolitan, has similar behaviors to you know, any Western, not Western, but certainly the more sort of, you know, bigger cities in here across Southeast Asia. So we can see that happening and playing out in some of those bigger cities. You know, if we launch a marketplace solution, maybe that can actually, based on the brand we create, we could serve the whole of Indonesia and say, hey, we sell this, I don't know, could be some organic pasta or something that's good to eat you know within a, a week or so and if you order from us we'll deliver it to you anywhere you want to so i think that's that's definitely a feasible option for us i think echoing what jamil said right i think we uh, i mean if we just look at other countries in asia like china korea if we look at indonesia we're still super early i think in the next 
five years, there's going to be a lot of adoption in e-commerce in, and, and e-commerce being said then in e-groceries. So I think we're still going to see high adoption. We're Even now we're with no lockdown, we're not seeing anything slow down. Still continuing to see a lot of organic growth. And I think kind of on the upstream side, we're, we're, we'll be seeing more kind of innovation in brands, in companies, in even fresh and farms, even, even farms who will be doing their own branding. And we see ourselves as really a company to help with all the distribution aspect, right? For the fresh products, for the frozen products, for us to really help the brands get to the market so they can focus more on building out their production, focus more on, on the upstream. Yeah. So, I mean, seeing, seeing a lot of opportunities, of course, will things can change, but we continue, I think we'll continue to reference other countries in the market and yeah, continue to see how, how the trends are, are forming. Yeah, and you got you are in a great great space. So yeah, next ten years should be smooth. A lot of challenges. Lot Hopefully, of challenges. Now let's talk about two things. I mean, I I, I know I said we'll talk about sustainability, but you know, last time I was talking to Jamil and he gave an amazing example about wastage, and that's so true because I've heard that from at least my experience in in India from the, you know. Well, my dad has always told me about the wastage which happens. So let's talk about sustainability as well as wastage within, you know, because you have a low shelf products. You know, how are you measuring it? How are you kind of responding it? You know, what are the protocols do you have in place to make sure both of this are answered? Yeah, I think, I mean, as a company, we take sustainability very seriously. We founded the company to make a lot of impact. So definitely making sure we're sustainable. Um, our whole business model actually reduces waste, right? Because we're able to create that market access directly from farmers to end consumers. What through the dis- traditional supply chain, what would normally be kind of 30, 30% to 40% waste or loss that you get from farms to the market, we're, we've managed to be able to reduce that to 5% and then kind of cush- give that uh, additional income to the farmer side for fair trade pricing. And also on the consumer side, make that the fresh uh, goods more affordable for them as well. Yeah, I mean, we, ha- we have a, a lot of other initiatives as well, other, other than waste. So we, in terms of packaging material, we want to make sure that we reuse the packaging material. There's uh, the team is working on reusable uh, packaging where customers can hand back their packaging. We also do have like an option on our app where customers can actually choose not to have any plastic packaging for their products, which we strongly encourage. And we'll see if we can kind of extend this to all customers. If we're seeing like good response and good uptake on this as well. So we're also seeing customers care a lot more about sustainability. We're also incorporate creating carbon offset and so working with a company called carbon ethics for carbon offset and another help you evaluate the carbon footprint right now correct yeah calculate the carbon footprint and then offset it by doing other initiatives Hmm. and we do also i think jamil touched upon this but we we actually source everything from the farmers so currently a lot of stuff gets thrown away so if the tomatoes don't look good, no one wants to buy them. These actually get thrown out. And again, this is where a lot of the waste comes from. So we sell imperfect goods, so imperfect items. So if you go to our app or our website, we have the perfect condition and then we have perfect condition. So this allows us to really buy everything in bulk, be able to grade it and 
uh, educate cu also customers, right? That the ugly products are still edible and, and still have a lot of like nutritional values. So yeah, I, I mean, hope this is continuing to grow and, and yeah, we hope to encourage customers to buy more imperfect products in, in the future while also educating farmers on how to grow like nicer looking products as well. I'm not sure if we've missed anything and pass it on to Jamil. I think the only thing, Amanda, is the uh, the movement really between the farms or facilities are actually on plastic crates, so we don't have any boxes. So these are being recycled. So this obviously is a start, small step, but as you know, when we imagine the business where it is today versus what will be in five years or ten years from now, this is a huge undertaking and helps actually control the wastage that way as well. So we minimize that, you know, use of plastic bags or boxes and such things. And I want you know, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about tech, which is involved here. I mean, you know, what I read as a description of Cyberbox that, you know, you are a tech-supported fresh produce distribution platform. So again, on the tech side, how much of this tech is really being used by farmers? Like, do they actually have a phone and app which tells them that this is what, how much of the products are being sold? What is in demand? How much money they're making? Is there something which a transparency given to them on hand? Or is all the tech just on the letter side of the business where it's more about supply chain and meeting the demands? So on the far farming side, it's something that's in the pipeline. So we haven't built anything specifically from the farmers. I think that will take a little bit of a longer adoption than it would on the supply chain and consumer part. So we're putting that on hold, but we do have a farmer's management system. So this is for our team to uh, help the farmers and, and also do monitoring process. Most of our tech is actually built in-house. So we do have the end-to-end -end control of the supply chain to be able to provide that certainty and service levels for customers. So on the consumer side where we have the app, we have the ordering platform, we're able to integrate with multiple partners. And on the supply chain side, we, we, we're building it from the farmers upstream monitoring up to, again, the end consumer. So we have the warehouse management system, we have the forecasting tools and technology. Yeah, Jamil, maybe can speak more about this part. Yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, pretty much entire supply chain end to end is mapped out with technology enabled tools that we have. So, you know, from um, how do you raise a purchase order based on forecast has been generated to receiving onto WMS, then the entire process from, you know, receiving all the way to outbound and then the quality checking. We then have a system, obviously, to do the last mile routing and the delivery and then tracking the deliveries happening because that's important from a customer satisfaction point of view. Then you go beyond that, which is now the quality aspect. So how do you track quality right across your supply chain for feed complaints or products that meet our requirements and make sure there's a tracker in place so we can use the information and do something with it. So this gets fed into our R&D team who we'll go and then research how to improve that, whatever the issue is. Uh, and then you have, uh, you know, uh, the SNOP, which is for us a very important tool and we're investing more time into this. As we grow, and to your point earlier on, you know, about earning money, we're trying to tie down our sales numbers to an actual output that we want to, to get. And to do that, we've actually installed a, an SNOP process actually holds everyone accountable. And then there's the, the general BI reports that we get on a daily basis around how the business is operating. So this is how we connect the end-to-end the -end piece. And now moving towards like culture, people, and talent. I mean, you know, we, we're basically an executive search. My whole background is executive search. So I'm always curious to bring this question on the podcast. But before that, let's try and just understand the culture you're trying to create within the organization. Just so, you know, let's say if you're trying to hire talent, it should help them understand the company better from outside. 
Yeah, I, I think the culture for us, uh, and it's a good question, you know, the one thing we really, really like and we want people to believe in the same thing is like when you look at the, the company and the way it was set up was to fix a problem. And, you know, Amanda leaving a job to do something, to become a farmer was really interesting when she told me this. I was, I was like, really? So, you know, when you speak to the other co-founders, they have the same mindset. So it's about coming in and have the desire to come actually make a change and believe in this passionately. So, you know, the customer obsession, and that's one of our values and it's the number one value that we have, is making sure that you're, you're coming every day and you believe in this value that we have and you live it, you breathe it. And actually you, you step out of, you know, your, your comfort zone every day to do something different. And there's obviously a bunch of other values, but I think if, if you know, there's one that, for me at least, you know, epitomizes the Sayur box that I've experienced in the last seven months is I've seen the dedication to fixing customer issues and keeping customer front and center has been really important for us. So I think for us, that culture and, and generally, you know, there are the other things around growth mindset, you know, making sure that people come in and they have a way of learning and becoming better. And you learn from everyone, literally. Every day you can learn a lesson from somebody else. You know, the ego about I know everything should be left at the doorstep and you come in and you become somebody actually evolving as the business evolves. So there are other bunch of, you know, values that we believe in, but I think the one which is really important for us is the customer obsession. Make sure you do something to make a difference to our customers' lives and think out of the box, what else can we do to be even more better and much more unique? Our DNA is still built around that. When we built our strategy, it was linked to customer sort of experience. And we never talk about customer service, not experience. You know, a service basically you serve somebody to do something. But you know, when you have a, a bad experience, you can may always make it better with the way you deal with it. So you're not actually doing a service, you're actually creating an experience. And we learn from that. So I think those bits are really important and are very, very focal to how we do things. And what kind of skills is needed to be successful in Cyberbox? Yes. So, I mean, we were, you know, I've, this is my second startup that I've gone through and what I recognize, and it's something that it, it's, it's quite unique that we're at that moment right now with Cyberbox. So, you know, as a startup, when you, when you kick off, you have small funds, you recruit people who are like, more all-rounders, they come and do a number of roles and they basically get the business going. At a certain point, you reach where you then need to start scaling the business. So then you need people with experience of having had done that before, maybe a bit more technically advanced in, in, in doing such things. So I'll give you an example. Now we're looking for, you know, like an operations manager who would have run a facility that's say 10,000 square meters big can process um, say 10, 15,000 orders a day. But when you go back four years, we were doing a couple of hundred orders and you need a very different person to manage this. So that's, I think, number one, you know, the scale of business dictates a very different requirement. I think the kind of, Leaders then we now look for, obviously, our, our recruitment process where maybe four or five of us will interview the same person for a senior leadership position and we're, we're checking for different skill sets. Obviously, the line manager does more around the technical part, but we sort of, you know, as, as a team then look for people who actually have the ability to sort of think on their feet, be nimble about how to do things. One thing you have to get used to with our startup culture is we change direction very very frequently we could do something this morning and change it this evening because that's what the business dictates and not many people can adapt to those kind of changes and then the hours can be quite insane you know it's very normal for us all to be on whatsapp at least seven days a week whenever one of us sends a message we would one of us would reply so i think that that's the other bit that you you need to have and then i think the final bit which is 
fundamental for the success of the business is you need leaders who can come and build teams. So you recruit the best, you build the best, you mentor even better. So that for us is like, you know, then brings a very different skill set in terms of the personal attributes a person has beyond their more technical sort of know-how. What do you think are going to be the future supply chain skills? What do you think Sarubox is going to hire five or 10 years from now? What skills are going to be the highest in demand? It's a very good question. You know, particularly, I guess okay, I'll give you a few and then I'm sure Amanda will have something more on the front side, on the farmer side. But I think from a more operational side, we will see a couple of things happen, right? So there's one about how do you fulfill an order and how do you, this on demand, so the instant delivery is a different kind of a solution that we're, we're now in, in the world of. And you you must have heard of the quick commerce part as well, you know, the click to deliver in 15 minutes. Now, if that is successful, we need people to actually manage that kind of operation for us. Uh, obviously, we still await to see how those results play out. I think the one area where I think we'll need to be much better and we need people to actually do that is people can actually connect data with actual physical operations. How do you use information to make decisions? And I think that's going to be really important, particularly when you look at last mile routing. You know, how do you deliver to a certain route and how do you change that based on certain parameters changing? And I think we'll need to, become, we'll need to have people much more data savvy to make the right decision. Today, what happens is we have a very... I wouldn't say it's simple today. It is still being used with data, but I think in the future it will become much more, particularly if, if the more instant operations kick off. How do you manage that? And you know, give you an example. Today we were analyzing our um, instant delivery business. I recognize a trend that suggests that we run the business during the daytime. So we start at uh, six in the morning to about eight in the evening, but we see the uptake of our sales and the traffic on our platform between nine to 12, which means we can make many decisions. A, we can recruit more people to serve more orders then. We can also influence the supply chain to say we need more products in at that point. We can also influence, you know, what do we buy and what do we bring in? And I think this is where we need our warehouse managers to make those decisions say, by the way, Mr. Buyer, I see more letters go out at, you know, 9 a.m. every day without fail, but only on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Let's get more in. I open up more space for you. So I think that's ownership of the business and making decisions becomes important. So yeah, it's and we're still at early stages. of a few other things, but I think for me that would be where we'll see managers coming in with, with a different skill set. Amanda, uh, you know what would you do differently back in 2016? I don't know. This is a really hard question because I think you can never guess, right? We might have some things right. We might have Jamil on board faster or, or something. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, even that, like, yeah. Thank so, you. For sure, for sure. So again, tough question to answer because I think things happen at different times and situations are uncertain. I think a lot like that we've done to get to where we are now is, I mean, again, being at a certain place at a certain time and really just putting in effort and work into the company right and the team i think has put in like tremendous effort yeah i always i always find let, let me ask you in, in a different way what, what is most challenging thing you basically solved and what can you do to make sure the challenge does not arise if you go back in time and start this business so is there something really challenging you try to solve and that was a, basically a mistake or a failure and you learned from that failure because this is a very interesting question yeah. for our audience because they always want to know that, oh, this is something we they overlooked and they should not do it. So again, 
we can we can pass this but again if you have any thoughts on this i'm happy to thank you also amanda things is one thing i can yeah. say that we i i think we did really well and i'm, I'm like whenever i talk to anyone about sayur box I, I always mention this is today again you connect to the customers and the experience what i recognize i think is a, is a massive achievement is to build a business that's a is tailored towards a big basket next day versus instant i think no many people do that from the offset and you kind of miss part of the customers that could trade with you and have a very different behavior and we built that we have you know locations in jakarta we have locations in bali as well as rabaya serving that click to deliver in, in 60 minutes i would say if there's one thing that you know apart from what we connect with the farmers that this bit here makes our business complete and as we now have evolved into say potentially marketplace and and probably a brand international brand or whatever else these are the sort of methods how we'll get this out to the customer and, and tailor it to each customer's need based on how they want it yeah. so i think for me that's the one thing i would say was an amazing sort of decision by the leadership team back when we took it over a year ago from now and it's it's going to definitely add value to what we do good one all right let's let's end it by giving you the stage you know jamil amanda both of you to kind of talk directly to the audience about cellbox yeah firstly i think again we should thank you so much for for the opportunity to come and talk to you and, and your audience i mean we we can't try to describe our business as it's as it is today you know we built a business as based around becoming an e-grocer and you know supply and and fix people's people's problems that they have every day so we've kind of described a lot of details there but what i would say is in the way i sort of summarize our team you know we have a team that's about 2000 strong through our employees strong we are you know in our offices in our warehouse you know last mile services across three cities and the one thing everyone does they come in you know every day they walk to the door beat in the warehouse or sit on their bike to go and deliver they live the value for us of being customer obsessed and making sure that uh, you know we do the right thing every time you know that's for us is the epitome of how the business is if i share a bit about how our business was and you know go back to the year 2016 we built a business very much focused on farm to fork making sure that we can actually bring in farmers give them a consistent and fair price for the effort they put in we also had a very clear ambition to say we want to serve our, our indonesian customers with locally procured produce of the best quality and, and you know in a consistent way that they can buy as we now transition into becoming an e-grocer we recognize that we need to complement fruits and vegetables with other products that an average household in indonesia would need to have on a daily basis for their needs we're moving in that direction and our third phase will be uh, within the next 18 months to now add a bit more around the lifestyle so sayur box for us is a company that came with a very strong purpose and that purpose is still alive for us we're now actually adding around it other thing that complement what we believe our customers need so it's a very to my mind business evolving and is taking shape and and different sizes and wherever we play for us we want to win those cities so we see ourselves as a number one player in the three cities we are in today and as we expand we'll have the same mentality to win the city serve our customers well and you know always with a view of what are we fixing for them to meet their daily challenges Oh, perfect. Uh, Jamil and Amanda, I wish you the best of luck with Sayur Box. 
For people who do not know, Servebox is a tech-supported, fresh-produced distribution platform based in Indonesia. Uh, you should be able, uh, if you're in Indonesia, you should be able to see their website and app. And if you're out of Indonesia, you can still see their website. If you have any more questions, are, are you both okay for the audience to reach out directly? Yep. Yeah, of course. Awesome. Perfect. Again, thank you, Jamila. Thank you, Amanda. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For all the show notes and information discussed in the episode, please follow Elcot Global slash podcast. Also, if you found this interesting, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any of the podcast platform. We are looking forward to your feedback. Thank you so much.